This morning we're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 5, John chapter 5. It's great to have all of you worshiping with us this morning. As a church, we've been working our way slowly uh, through the gospel of John. The gospel of John is really just a biography of Jesus. Um, There's four biographies about Jesus in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of course, John. And so John is uh, just a biography about the person of Christ, just a biography about Jesus. And because it is a biography about the person of Jesus, about the person of Christ, um, he tells us certain things. And John specifically tells us that he picks the things that he needs to talk about so that we could um, believe in Jesus and that by believing we could have life in his name. And so everything that is in the Gospel of John, the biography of, about Jesus according to John, is um, written so that we could have life. And this passage is no different. So a couple weeks ago, we, we saw at the beginning of John 5 how there was a man who was crippled and lame and who Jesus healed him, even though he'd been sick for 38 years. And he had healed him on the Sabbath, and that led to some conflict. And we're seeing one of the, the parts of this chapter is continuing that, um, that conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees. But the conflict takes a turn in this passage. And while Jesus is pointing out their inability to uh, and their their unwillingness to receive what he's given them, he also points out and offers to them this gift of life that they would find life and receive the glory that comes from the Father. So we're going to dive into this, verses 30 through 47. I'm going to give you a little bit of a a tip or a hint or whatever. Uh, When I uh, tell people how to read the Bible, one of the things that I always tell them is, Find the most important thing. If you're reading the Bible, you're reading a passage of Scripture, what's the most important thing, the thing that kind of just grabs you and sticks out to you? Verse 44, verse 44 is the most important thing of this whole section. You'll see why. Verse 44. So if you underline or scratch or chicken scratch like I do in your Bible or whatever, that's the verse. Everything else is good too. Don't worry. It's all God's Word. But if you're looking what's the summit of this passage, verse 44 is, and we'll... Hopefully you'll see why by the end. All right, verses, starting verse 30, he says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I... Say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that you would fill us with your word, that you would make us to understand, that you would cause your word and your love to dwell within us, that we might have life and receive the glory that comes from the only Father. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. How can I see the glory? How can I see the glory? If you've ever known someone, um, maybe someone that comes to your mind when I describe this, who um, you knew and who mentored you and who was a pivotal person in your life. And when you think of them, uh, they describe what it means to be someone who just loves the Lord and their example of godliness and piety. And they seem to have an in with the man upstairs. And they seem to have an insight into the word and the scripture and a love for Christ. Maybe you're here and you want to know, how can I be like that person? How can I see what that person saw? How can I experience what that person experienced in Scripture? Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know what you think about all of this, and we're glad to have you. We are thrilled to have people who don't know where they're at spiritually. This, I hope, is a welcoming and open place for you. We want you to be here if if you're kind of wondering. And um, maybe you're here and you've heard us sing and you've heard us pray and you you will hear the word preached and you're wondering how can i see what they see how can i believe what they believe maybe you're here and you are going through a dark valley and the darkness is pressing in on you from all sides and it's like a a fog that you have no uh, vision through And you just feel like everything is coming to a head. And the only thing when you see, when you look forward, is darkness. And maybe you're wondering, how can I see light at the end of the tunnel? How can I see the glory? This passage this morning is about seeing and seeking the glory of God. Seeing and seeking and receiving and believing in the glory that comes from God. So this morning, I'm going to talk about how Jesus, how God helps us to see the glory. I want to talk about why he helps us to see the glory. Then I talk, want to talk about why some people will not see it. So how and why and why. How and why and why. question is, how does he help us see the glory? How does he help us see the glory? Well, he gives us witnesses. He gives us witnesses. You'll notice that word witness occurs a ton in this passage. And really, the whole Gospel of John is based on eyewitness testimony, as is the other four, uh, other three Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all based on eyewitness testimony. And this, uh, this p- section in John's Gospel is based on eyewitness testimony. And the, the whole Gospel is based on eyewitness testimony. And, and so God provides witnesses to His glory. Now, before we get too far, we just have to deal with an objection. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, I don't know how I can trust a witness. I don't know how I can trust a witness. I don't know how I can trust that somebody, something somebody else tells me. I think I have to know it for myself. I can't see it if somebody else tells me about it. 
And so maybe that's holding you back from believing in Scripture, believing in the Word of God, or maybe that's a doubt that you're, that festers in your soul. And I just I want to press on that just for a second. That's not the way. Um, that's not the way that we approach knowledge of any other kind. We often apply a different standard of knowledge to God than we would of man to man. And so, um, and by the way. A great book that is really helpful on this is uh, Richard Baucom's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, but it's 500 pages, so I'm going to condense it. So if you don't want to read those 500 pages, just listen close for the next couple minutes. You can. Great book. Fantastic book. I'd be happy to read through it with any of you, sort of. Anyways, (laughs) been there, done that. I think it's on Cliff Notes. Anyways, um, but one of the points that he makes is we don't know anything outside of witnesses. So let me give you an example. First day of first grade, we wander into either Miss Larson's or Miss Small's class, classroom, and they write on the, the chalkboard or whiteboard or whatever, or tablet or I don't know, and they say the first letter of the alphabet is A. When you're a first grader, you don't say, no, I think it's B. I mean, maybe you do. Some sums do. But that's not what they're supposed to do. Like, you, you don't walk into a classroom and say, no, I need to figure out the alphabet for myself. You don't walk into a classroom and say, I don't need to figure out 2 plus 2 equals 4 for myself. We, to, to know that that's true, to verify it, to experience it, to act on it, requires a degree of trust. That we trust that A really does come before B. I will never learn the alphabet song if I don't get that right. A before B. There is no such thing as true and genuine knowledge that does not come first from receiving testimony. Now, certainly, as we receive that testimony, we trust it and we act upon it. We find it to be true. And I'm not saying you can never receive false testimony. I'm just saying that, that there is no such thing as any kind of knowledge which doesn't start with testimony. The example that I always use is I have a, a computer and I worked on this sermon on this computer and I hit print this morning to print off a piece of paper with some references. But I don't know how it works. Somebody just tells me, click print, and I click print, and it works, and sometimes it doesn't, and I get front. I, I don't know. It's some, somehow it's all ones and zero. I don't understand any of that. I went to the wrong kind of college for that, and yet it, it works, and I, I trusted that it would work because somebody a long time ago told me if you hit print, it will print. There is no such thing as true and genuine knowledge, period, which does not start with receiving witness and receiving testimony. So why would we expect, if God has built the universe to be that way, and knowledge to be that way, why would we expect that understanding God could come any differently? So God has given us five witnesses, five witnesses to his son, five witnesses in this passage. The first one is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was another preacher, religious leader in the first century who preached and who witnessed to the son to come. We see that in verse 33, says, you sent to John and he's born witness to the truth. It says in verse 35, he was burning and shining, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And of course, Jesus is referring to this incident in chapter one. He says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. 
Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John the Baptist witnessed to the Christ who was to come. He witnessed to Jesus. that He said, take it from me. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the, I'm not the, the one who can tell you about God. I'm, I'm just a witness. Jesus is the one. So that's the first witness. The second witness is actually the works that Jesus does. So John's gospel has a number of signs. We've seen some of those signs already. We'll see some more. Next week, we'll see two of them in one week, maybe. We see signs throughout. John turns, or records how Jesus turns water into wine. He records how Jesus cleans out the temple. He records how Jesus heals a nobleman's son. He records how Jesus heals the lame man. We'll see next week how he feeds the 5,000 and walks on water and how he cures the blind. And in, in the story of Lazarus, how he raises the dead. That These signs were given, these works were given so that we might believe. It's not Jesus who's testifying. Because up above, he says, I can't, you know, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It's a legal statement. He's, he's assuming a legal setting. But he's saying, my works, they bear witness. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me. The works that I am doing bear witness about me. So that's the, the, third, or the second witness. The third witness is the Scriptures. The third witness is the Scriptures. And there the Scriptures refers to the Old Testament, um, but by implication we can reason to the New Testament as well. It says in verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now Jesus is not saying it's wrong to read the Scriptures to know how to have eternal life. He's just saying they didn't finish the, their reading. They, didn't, they weren't good interpreters. It says, And it is they that bear witness about me. So he, what he's saying is the whole Old Testament bears witness about Jesus. So sometimes we read the Bible, we think Jesus doesn't show up till Matthew. It's actually not true. We see references to the Messiah and the prophet who's to come in the Old Testament. We see, for example, Deuteronomy 18, which we read earlier, that there's a reference to the Messiah who's to come. And then we also see types that Jesus fulfills. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Solomon. And Matthew 12 tells us Jesus says, Someone greater than Solomon is here. And you even see Jesus make cameo appearances in the Old Testament. So when you're reading the Old Testament and you're, you're reading, for example, Joshua, and you see in Joshua that there's a, a great warrior standing in front of Joshua, and Joshua says, are you for us or for the Lord or for our enemies? And the man says, no, I'm, for, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. That, I believe, is a cameo appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, all of the Old Testament is given to give eternal life, but it's given to give eternal life by witnessing to the Son. That the whole Old Testament is given to teach us about the person of Jesus. The third witness, uh, the fourth witness that we see in this passage is Moses. Moses, of course, is the author of the first five books of the Bible. We see this in, starting in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father as one who accused you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Moses witnesses to Jesus. Moses in the Old Testament was kind of like George Washington and Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. all wrapped into one. He, he was a religious leader who wrote the first five books of the Bible. He was also a national figure who established, the, if, we, if it is, the constitution of the people of God. He was the uh, inspirational leader who led the people of Israel out of bondage, out of, into liberation, and into freedom. 
And Jesus says, you look back to Moses because you want to know about him, but he, you've put your hope in him, but he hoped in me. That I am the one that Moses pointed forward to. Jesus trying to say, there are all these witnesses in front of you. That you should just believe that God has provided, has not lacked for witnesses. He's given you witnesses to me. You don't need to just look at them, read the scriptures, look at the works that I'm doing. They testify to me that who I, who I say that I am, I indeed am. And then one last witness that he says, the witness who's behind all these other witnesses, and this is a really important point to get, is the Father. Because by working through these other witnesses, the Father is himself witnessing. So in verse 32, it says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And again in verse 36, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. We even see when he's talking about the scriptures, all the Old Testament Jews would have believed that the words of the God, that the word of God came from the lips of God, that it's the Father's witness. And so if Scripture speaks to the Christ who has come, so does the Father. And then again we see in verse 30, or starting in verse 45, that Moses, the one whom they'd set their hope on, he will accuse them before the Father. The Father is the one who's witnessing behind all of these other witnesses. Now, here's why that's super important. Because God is a God who wants to be known. Let me say that again. God is a God who wants and desires and makes way for himself to be known. God does not have to bear witness to himself. Nobody can compel God to do that. Nobody can reach into the abyss and pull God out. God wants to be known. That's why God provides witnesses. Because he wants us to see him and to know him and to receive him and to believe in him. Now, if you push this a little bit farther and you understand what, exactly what he's saying, the implications of this are tremendous. Because the Father's witness about the Son is God's witness about himself. Just think about that. The Father's witness about the Son is that God's witness about himself. It's God witnessing to his own Son and who has the same nature as him. Which means this. When God gives us witness to himself, when God gives us the scriptures and God gives us preachers and God, God gives us these miracles that Jesus has done and God gives Moses... He's inviting us into his self-knowledge through the very words that you are probably holding right in front of you, printed on a page or maybe in your phone. You are standing on the brink of eternity and the Father is behind you saying, look, look, see my glory. The Father is a Father who knows His Son and who invites us to know Him through His Son and who invites us into His own self-knowledge. 
God is a God who wants to be known, much like a museum curator comes before the crowd and unfolds all the things that they need to know about the painting. So the Father comes before us and tells us all that we need to know about the Son. If in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, there are things that God does not reveal. But then he says, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. If there are things that are hidden, there are also things that are revealed, and God invites us into his own knowledge of himself that we might see and behold the glory of God. And the question of all this, why would God want us to know? Why does God want us to see? Why does God provide witnesses at great cost and great expense and great effort that we might see him? Well, this passage gives a number of reasons, all of which are complementary and all of which which work together. I'm going to try to combine them. It's going to seem like I'm jumping around, but I'm, I'm not. In verse 38, it says, you do not have his word abiding in you. So part of the reason that God gives his witnesses, that God speaks through scripture, that God speaks through his son, that God speaks through Moses, is so that his word would abide in us. That his word would remain in us, that we would, that we would have it. I believe this is new covenant language. So this is the language of the new heart being put into us, as Jeremiah says. So he wants the word to abide in us. Secondly, he gives us witness to himself so that we might be saved. Jesus says in verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from a man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. So Jesus gives us witness to himself that we could be forgiven of our sins, that we could have our sins removed from us as far as the east is from the west, that we would no longer be burdened by guilt and shame and regret, but those things would be nailed to the cross. Jesus also, uh, God also provides witness so that we could have eternal life. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That through the scriptures, God is offering us eternal life. He's proffering before us a chance to walk in the resurrection, to enter into the resurrection of life and not the resurrection of judgment. All of these things are true. But I believe, I believe they're building up to this one. And this is why I said verse 44 is the most important. I'm going to focus on the second half of this verse first. Where it says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? That's what the Pharisees are doing. And this is the ideal. This is what they're supposed to be doing. This is why God has given these witnesses. So that they could seek the glory that comes from the only God. Did you notice how strange a phrase that is? to seek the glory that comes from the only God. What is he saying there? Because that means that God, there's the only God, gives glory. What does it mean to seek the glory that comes from the only God? Does that mean that God comes to church and praises us like we come to church and praise him? I don't think so. I don't think that's the meaning of what it means here when it's saying that God gives glory. What is he saying? Well, if we're being invited into God's knowledge of himself through his son, then to seek his glory probably means something more like this, that we can come before his glory and we can bask in his presence. 
that we can come much like you would come to that painting in the museum and you would sit and you would stare at it and take it in. Or like you would go to the, the uh, shore of the sea and you would hear the waves crash and you would watch the sunset. Or you would go to the Grand Canyon, you would stare for miles and miles and miles and look at the wonder of the creation. To seek the glory that comes from the only God, I believe, means to come and sit before the glory and to bask in it and to endure in it and to hear the Father say, look at that over there. Look, look at this over here. Look at the glory of the Son. When you and I seek the glory, what are we seeking? We're seeking to sit and savor in the glory of God. Notice the contrast here with this and with what they did with John the Baptist. So open verse 35. says, He, speaking of John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So, the, the Pharisees were willing to sit in the light of John the Baptist and to rejoice in that light only for a little while. Notice the contrast of that with the sun, that we could come and sit and rejoice in the glory of the sun, not for a little while, but forever. That we could come and sit and seek and savor and rejoice, not for an hour, Not for a day, not for a month, not for a year, not for a decade, not for a hundred years. But so that we could sit and savor and rejoice in the glory of God forever. But that's only half, half of what makes that sentence so strange. Because the other question is, what does he mean by glory? Have you ever thought about it? We use that word all the time. It's in our songs, it's in our prayer. What does it mean? What does the word glory mean? Well, the Old Testament word for glory, which the New Testament usually is referring to, is the Hebrew word kabod. And kabod means heaviness or weightiness or heftiness or density. So when it speaks of the glory of God in the Old Testament, it's often this idea almost like spiritual gravity, like it's the thing that everything else gravitates to and everything else revolves around and everything else orbits around and stares back at it and it attracts everything to it. That's what the glory of God is. But then we see really strange things. Like it almost seems like in certain passages of the Old Testament, like Exodus 3 and 4 or like Isaiah 6, that the glory of God is almost like a person. Because the greatest representation of the weightiness of God, the clearest manifestation of the heftiness of God and the importance of God and the significance of God is not a what, it's a who. And so to seek the glory that comes from the only God is to seek to come and to sit in the midst of and to bask in the midst of and to rejoice in the glory of the Son of God forever. Why does God open up Himself? Why does He give us a witness to Himself so that we might know Him and see Him? Why does God provide witnesses that we might be saved and have eternal life? It's so that we could sit in the presence of the Son and rejoice forever. 
And when you and I open up our Bibles, when you and I come to church and we, we hear the Word of God opened up and preached to us, when we contemplate the works that God has done, we are sitting on the edge of eternity and God is saying, it's right there. Look at it. Enjoy it. Savor it forever. Taste and see that it is good. And the question is, why don't they? Why don't the fair, eternity, the, the most real thing in the universe is right in front of them? Why, why don't they receive it? Why do they choose to rejoice for a while instead of for eternity? Why do they seek the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God? I mean, you see what they're doing, don't you? They are exalting in the witness rather than in the thing that's being witnessed to. They're they're elevating and meditating upon the messenger instead of the message. They're contemplating the patterns of the mouth instead of hearing and receiving the word. Why don't they do? Why don't they receive the glory that comes from God? It's because they seek the glory that comes from one another. I told you 44 was the most important verse in this. They seek and receive the glory that comes from one another. This is deliberately contrasted with Jesus himself, when he says, I do not receive the glory from people. What he doesn't mean is that people aren't free to worship him. Rather, Jesus is not seeking after the glory that comes from people. What does it, what does it mean to seek the glory that comes from one another rather than that which comes from the only God? What, what is the difference between those two things? To seek the glory that comes from the only God is to come and sit and bask and enjoy for all eternity the person of the Son. To seek the glory that comes from one another is to expect the same satisfaction from faulty, frail, fragile humans that they can never give. To, to seek the glory that comes from, from one another Is to be, is to put the expectation on each other that we could give the joy and the satisfaction that only comes through Christ. And that, that is something that can only lead to temporary joy to disappointment, to frustration, to anger, to fear and anxiety. Because if that is what we're seeking joy from, and those things will never satisfy us, those things can never satisfy, they can't do it. 
And the only thing that that can produce in us is disappointment and fear about losing that because it's only, it's only giving us a little bit. C.S. Lewis in his excellent but at times confusing book, Till We Have Faces, says that there is a kind of love which is nine-tenths hatred. There is a kind of love which is nine-tenths hatred. And to seek the glory that comes from one another is not to seek the best things about that other person, but it's to seek from somebody with the craving of an addict the kind of glory that only God can give in the Son. And it is nine-tenths hatred. The strong message for us today as we are hearing this word is to not be like that. To not seek the glory that only comes from the Father. Or to not, seek the, to not forsake the glory that only God can give to receive the glory that comes from man. Because it will never come. On the other hand, on the other hand, if we were to apply this passage, let me give you a number of ways which I believe this passage can inform and shape and draw us closer and closer to the glory of God. Number one, remember that God wants you to know Him. God wants you to know Him. Why else would you be here this morning if God didn't want you to know Him? Why else would His Word be in front of you? Why else would you be hearing this sermon? Why else would you be with this people if God didn't want you to know Him? God wants you to know Him. He wants you to see and to believe and to receive Him. He wants you to see His glory. God wants you to know Him. Number two. Do not be easily satisfied. Do not be easily satisfied. Do not allow your taste and your appetite for the things of this world to ruin your appetite for the things of heaven. We we have a black hole in our house in the form of a toddler that without fail, about 15 minutes before dinner, starts to consume anything that's not buttoned down and nailed down to the floor. And we have to resist that so he can have dinner. We're supposed to resist that so he can have dinner. And so many of us, we allow the things of this world to ruin our appetite for the things of glory rather than receiving the things of the Father. C.S. Lewis says it this way in, um, in his great sermon, The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an infinite child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do not be easily satisfied with the things of this world. But do, do be eternally satisfied with the Son of God. Love what Augustine says in his confessions. For thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Is your heart resting in the Lord this morning? Is your satisfaction and your joy found in him? Have you asked him to be your savior? Have you put your faith in him this morning? Have you stopped seeking the glory that comes from man and started seeking the glory that comes from God? And the good thing for you is if you haven't done that, I've outed all the members of this church this morning. They've already stood up. We even have a new one with us this morning. And any one of these members has just promised right in front of you to be happy and willing to share the gospel. And so if you don't know what the gospel is and you want to know what the gospel is, pull aside somebody that you saw standing earlier during the covenant and they would be happy to tell you about that. I know I've heard a lot of them share the gospel and they love it and they would love for you to love it as well. Number four, we need to guard our heart for the subtle and deceitful Seeking of the glory that comes from man. Let me say that again. We need to guard our heart from the subtle and, and deceitful glory, seeking the glory that comes from man. That is a way that will only lead to disappointment, to fear, to frustration. That is a weed that can worm its way down into the recesses of our heart. And much like a weed grows up through concrete, so that will grow up through our heart and produce no small amount of frustration. And it will take a lot of work to get it out. And if you didn't need more motivation to guard your heart, if you need just a little bit more, If seeking after the glory that comes from man rather than that comes from God, if those two things do not correlate, if they always, if you either do one or the other, that means that you will never see all the glory that God has for you in Scripture as long as you are hell bent on seeking the glory that comes from man. So if you feel, this is not the only reason, but it could be a reason. If you feel like when you read the scriptures, it's just dull to you, and it doesn't make sense, and it's just, yeah, you just don't have a motivation to read the scriptures, I would question your heart and encourage you to look at your heart. Is it that you are too distracted by the glory that comes from man that you can't see the glory that comes from God and scriptures? Maybe that's not true, but it can be true. whatever number this is, five, I think. We should read the Bible like Jesus. 
We should read the Bible like Jesus. When we're reading through the Old Testament, we should be looking for the ways that it echoes and alludes to and finds fulfillment in the person of Christ. We should be looking for where Christ makes cameos in the Old Testament. We should be looking for ways that Christ shows up and the ways that the New Testament brings together the tensions in the Old. We should be looking for for the ways that these two books, uh, these two parts of the Bible connect to one another. Because the Bible is a marvelous, marvelous treasure for us. And the way that it all connects to the New Testament could only be true if it was of God. Number six-ish. On the one hand, there is great comfort, I believe, to be had when we realize that, for some of us, Jesus has solidarity with us and that he was mistreated by those who mistreated the word of God. Let me say that again. There is great comfort to be had for us when we realize that Jesus has solidarity with us And that he was mistreated by those who mistreated the word of God. And so if you are here this morning, and even coming through that door was hard for you because of the ways that someone like me has stood up in front and has used the word as a bludgeon, and has used word to exact loyalty to themselves, and has used the word in a way that does not honor God, you should have solace and comfort from the fact that Jesus himself was treated the same way. And yet, there's also conviction that should come because Jesus did not toss out the witnesses. Uh, Jesus did not toss out the truth of Scripture. Jesus did not toss out the Bible. He did not toss out the mission that God had given us to do because some people misunderstood it. And so if you've been hurt by somebody who is a pastor or maybe a leader in a church and they weren't being faithful to Scripture and they were misusing and misapplying Scripture, my heart hurts for you. I know exactly what that's like, but that doesn't change the truth of what this word says. Number seven, I think. This basking that comes in the glory of God, this joy that comes when we read Scripture and when we see God's witnesses and we see the glory of God, this joy that is available for us is available to all regardless of life circumstance. And so if things are going great and you're on a mountaintop and you can see and it's a clear day, That's wonderful. The joy is available for you. If you are going through the thick of it and you feel like the walls are collapsing in on you and you feel that you are broken, this joy is available for you too. If you feel the waves are coming over the side of the boat and you're taking on water and you don't know how much longer you can go, this glory is available to you. If you are working your way through the humdrum of life and you're just going from day to day and minute to minute and hour to hour, this joy is available to you. And if you're tired, if you're weighed down, if you feel the weight of eternity is bearing on you, 
if you feel like there are pressures upon your soul which you struggle to even articulate, well, Jesus says to us, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Father in heaven, we thank you that you invite us to bask in the glory of your Son. How appropriate it is after that that you invite us to your table. I pray for us now that you would cause this word that's just been spoken to dwell deeply in our hearts, that you would keep your word, that you would not allow scriptures to return void. Pray that you would use this in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives this week. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Now we come to the time in our service where once a month we take the Lord's table together. The way that we do that here is that I'm going to say a few words, and then in a minute the elders are going to come. They're going to distribute the bread, and we'll take the bread together. We'll distribute uh, the glass, and we'll take the glass together. Here at Grace Bible Church, we, we take it seriously when it says in Scripture that the one who eats or drinks in an improper manner eats or drinks judgment upon themselves. So if you're here this morning, we love that you are here. If you um, are, are walking with Jesus, a repentant sinner, um, and you are a member of a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, we invite you to this table. If you're here this morning, those things aren't true. If, you're, if you are, feel that there is a sin that you're wrestling with in your soul, or maybe you're not a member of a church, or maybe if you are here this morning and, and you... Um, uh, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're not sure where you're at with the Lord. We just would encourage you to let this table pass. We're so glad that you are here. Um, but this is a table for those who know what it, uh, for those who've com- covenanted together as a body. Um, but I want to say a couple things before we get into this this morning. One of the interesting things about Luke's gospel, um, when he brings us before the table, as it starts off by saying, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. If you know Luke's gospel, that's out of place. It's really odd. It makes sense in Matthew's gospel because Matthew has this, uh, this, uh, all these, these references to suffering. And Mark's, Mark just it was a downer. And so it would have made sense in Mark's gospel. And as we've already seen, John addresses those who are suffering and hurting quite frequently. But in Luke's gospel, Luke's a gospel of joy and of happiness, that there's all this reconciliation that happens. And and yet there's this phrase right before the most tender moment that Jesus shared with his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It seems odd, and yet when we take it at face value, it makes sense. Because it's a a joy for those who, who know that they've been forgiven, who know that they've been reconciled to break bread together. And we break bread together because someone was broken on our behalf. And that when Jesus shares this table with us, it's a table that he has purchased at the price of his own blood. So at this time, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite the elders up, and they're going to distribute the elements. And then we will all take this together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this meal pray that you'd use it to sustain us. Pray that you'd use it in our hearts and our lives 
to give us an intimate nearness with Christ, to bind us towards one another, and to send us out on mission to reach the lost with the kingdom. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.